Last week, on the History of Medicine, we talked about the stuff just before antibiotics, and especially of Ehrlich's first magic bullet, Salversan. Most people, myself included before this podcast, generally think of the first broad-spectrum antibiotic as penicillin, discovered by Alexander Fleming. Depending on your exact definition of antibiotic, that's kind of true, but oftentimes this following story gets missed. As such, I would like to dedicate this week's episode to the story of sulfanamides. Our story starts with a brief prologue. If this were a movie, this would be the scene before the title card. We briefly meet one Paul Joseph Jacob Jelmo. He was a scientist who, in 1908, was developing some new dyes. One of them was sulfanalamide, and was used to make some very pretty dyes more permanent. His company obtains a patent for the compounds, and they make some great dyes. Jelmo, unfortunately, though, isn't the star of this story. And at this point in history, we did not have doctors investigating dye-related chemicals for medical use. Fast forward almost a decade to 1914. World War I is in full swing, with massive casualties on both sides, modern technology making its way into warfare. At the First Battle of Ypres, a 19-year-old infantryman, Gerard Domag, is shot in the head. He survives, but his unit is decimated, with 1 in 10 soldiers wounded or killed, unfortunately common numbers for World War I. He is sent to a hospital where, unfit to return to combat while recovering, he trained as a medical assistant. Upon recovery, he's sent back to the Eastern Front in their medical department this time, named the Sanitary Service. Despite their best efforts, the Sanitary Service was anything but. Domag is horrified by what he encounters, witnessing brutal wounds and realizes that most of the deaths came not from the wound itself, but the festering infections that would develop over time afterwards. After returning home from the war, Domag becomes a pacifist and a doctor, and in 1929 is working at the IG Farman Industry Bayer plant near Dusseldorf. The important part of that is the Bayer part of that. It's a company that you may have heard of. An associate of the lab dies early from a bacterial infection, and Domag decides to investigate how to stop Streptococcus, the bacteria responsible for the death. He follows in Ehrlich's footsteps, if you recall from last week, Ehrlich was the one who coined the term magic bullets and found salversan, a cure for syphilis, from experimenting with dyes. Domag, as a researcher, was also busy investigating if dyes could be used to treat diseases, again following the same logic that a chemical capable of selectively attaching to microbes could also be used to harm them. However, Domag was responsible for a major innovation, his model for testing. Ehrlich had grown bacteria in test tubes, and then tested his chemicals for efficacy in those tubes. But this massively simplifies the process of treating disease. The body introduces many complexities, and so he may have been missing on effective treatments, or getting false positives by just testing in test tubes. So Mog instead did his testing on mice directly. As we'll find out later, this was crucial to his success. In order to test out the new compounds he was finding, Domag injected them into mice that were infected deliberately with Streptococcus. I'm conflicted by this, because on one hand, it's terrible mistreatment of animals, but on the other, they did not have better options, and the research did a lot of good. Like many things in life, there are no easy answers. Like Ehrlich, they altered compounds little by little, starting from dyes previously found to attach to bacteria. Domag tried over 300 chemicals, none of them being effective. Finally, after four years of testing, in 1932, Joseph Claret 
Domag's chemist gave him another new dye to test, which he dubbed KL730. Upon testing, it cleared the mice of infection, and they called this new drug Prontosil. Further testing revealed that the drug was only effective against some bacteria, but was especially good at combating Streptococcus. It was readily absorbed in the gut, survived stomach acid, and freely excreted through urine, all promising traits for safe use in humans. They began human trials at a hospital in Wuppertal. An 18-year-old was admitted to the hospital with a severe sore throat that had worsened into fever and large abscesses, and then from there, into kidney blockage. Without intervention, she would have died for sure. But, within 24 hours of Prontosil injections, the patient's temperature normalized, and in six days, she was cured. Similar trials went on for the next two years. They discovered as well that the drug worked against a number of non-strep infections, like spinal meningitis, pneumococci bacteria, and gonorrhea. In 1935, Domag is finally confident enough to publish his results. Meanwhile, scientists at the Pasteur Institute over in France wanted to capitalize on Prontosil, but could not because of the existing patent on it. Despite the drug's massive humanitarian potential, the original company in Germany refused to release any samples to others, and it's probable, too, that the Nazi government would not have wanted the drug available to other countries. In order to circumvent this, scientists instead figured out that the body actually broke down Prontosil into other molecules. For example, the sulfanamide molecule, which, if you'll remember, Jelmo discovered originally. That sulfanamide molecule is actually responsible for the beneficial effects of the drug. However, again, those had been synthesized back in 1908, and as such could not be patented again. Sulfanamide was actually already widely used and available in dye production. As a result, sulfanamides could be manufactured by anybody, and just about everybody did. Its usage exponentially spread from there. For example, in 1936, British doctors announced the successful use of sulfanamides in treating various fevers, cutting mortality from 20 to 4.7%. Another notable example, Domag's own daughter. While sewing, she pricked herself with a needle in the hand. And while that sounds very minor to us today, she developed an infection of streptococcus in her arm. As was standard at the time, physicians recommended amputation. But Domag's faith in his own work could not be shaken, and she made a full recovery with Prontosil within a week. The real tipping point came when Franklin D. Roosevelt, who you may have heard of before, falls ill. To be fair, we're talking about the son of the president, who is named the same, but nonetheless a bit of a VIP at the time. He was suffering from severe tonsillitis, which his mother was convinced would kill him. The doctor tried Prontosil as a last measure, which worked like a charm. With the President of the United States proclaiming that Prontosil had saved his son, the word spread rapidly. The December 17, 1936 edition of the New York Times proclaimed on its front page headline, Young Roosevelt saved by new drug, doctor used Prontolin on streptococcus infection of the throat. Condition once serious, but youth in Boston Hospital gains steadily. Fiance, reassured, leaves bedside. Which, personally, I think is a tad long, but hey, different times, right? By the next year, in 1937, a hundred different companies were selling sulfanamide under different names all over the world. The Japanese had Pradenol, the Dutch Streptopan, the Brazilians Stoptin, the Czechs had Supron, the French had five versions, and the British actually over 30. 
In an attempt to find something that could be usefully patented again, Domag and his chemists manufactured a variety of sulfanamide molecules. These new drugs offered treatments for pneumonia and meningitis. Most importantly, one molecule was found to be effective against tuberculosis. Unfortunately, Domag doesn't really get a lot of credit. At this point, World War II is ramping up, and people have bigger problems on their minds than a cure for TB. In 1939, Domag actually received the 1939 Nobel Prize for Medicine. Unfortunately, the Nobel Committee had bestowed the Nobel Peace Prize on some German dissidents, who were currently in concentration camps. Hitler decreed it anti-German to accept anything from the Nobel Committees, and Domag was actually disdained by the Gestapo to prevent this, for the offense of, quote, being too polite to the Swedes in his refusal to accept the prize. During World War II, Prior to the introduction of penicillin, just about every single soldier carried a small vial of white powder in his pack, usually labeled wound powder, with instructions to sprinkle the powder onto any open wound and place a bandage over it. As you could maybe guess, these powders were sulfanamides, and the hope was that they would kill the bacteria surrounding the wound and prevent infection. Although not quite as useful as penicillin, sulfanamides probably still saved numerous lives, and their earlier introduction made quite a difference. These drugs collectively came to be known as sulfa drugs, which is probably the term you've heard today, if you've been exposed to these drugs in any way. They're still in use today, albeit pretty rarely. Although they're more commonly used in poorer countries since they are cheap, elsewhere they've been supplanted by more modern antibiotics. This is because sulfanamides have some really serious disadvantages. They don't work on all bacteria, and they don't work well on localized infections where pus was present. Allergies are pretty common too, with about 3% of the population being allergic to sulfa drugs. I myself actually develop some pretty nasty rashes if I get them. Sulfa drugs also have a lot of nasty side effects, which are often worth it if the alternative is death or amputation, but not so much if there are better antibiotics with less side effects. We're talking some pretty standard ones like fatigue, nausea, fevers, rashes, and inflammation, escalating all the way up to urinary tract disorders, some of which form crystals in the bladder, blood cell disorders, and really serious skin disorders. That's it this week. It's a bit of a short one. But next week, we'll finally get to what I'm sure you've all been waiting for, Alexander Fleming and penicillin, which really, really triggers the antibiotic revolution. Thanks to Muse Open for our theme music, Angie for our lovely logo, and you, my dear listener, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. Feel free always to reach out, especially with feedback at our Facebook page, website, or my email. Please leave me a review on whatever platform you're listening. Good reviews will help me find more listeners, and bad reviews will help me make the show better. (laughs) 